Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 2. We're going to take a break this morning from our study through the first three chapters of John. We're going to move to Psalm 2. As we have a very momentous week ahead of us, uh, once every four years, we have an opportunity to worship God in a way that we don't on other weeks of the year. And that's that we are going to worship God as we go to the polls and vote. Do you view voting as an act of worship? Or is it something that just Americans do on the first Tuesday in November every four years or so, or every two years? No, this is an act of worship for the Christian church to go to the polls and vote. And we will be talking about that some this morning. We will definitely be talking about that tonight. But I want to urge you as we walk up to the polls on Tuesday, unless you've already early voted that we are actually going to worship the living God because it's him who puts kings on their thrones and presidents in their white houses. It's him who does it, and he does it through the agency of his people who act in obedience to him and worship by voting for those that would uphold his principles as closely as possible. So now as we go to Psalm chapter 2, let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, We come to you this morning needful of your word. We need to be washed with the truth that we will see in these 12 verses out of Psalm 2. We need the truth to be real to us in these verses. And so I ask that you would use this time and you'd use my voice and you'd use my study and preparation to prepare all of us to worship you, the sovereign God who reigns in all his sovereignty. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Put yourself in 1789, Paris, France, the French Revolution. It's a tumultuous time in that nation's history. And there was a turbulent day when a revolutionary, a political revolutionary, sought to remove every symbol of law and order from the eyes of all of his countrymen. So what did he do? On July 14th of 1789... He stormed the Bastille. The Bastille was an old medieval fortress that had been converted in those days to a prison, and the federal government of the Republic of France would imprison people there and uh, hold people for long terms as they stood against the government and did other things. Well, this revolutionary sought to overtake this former fortress, now turned penitentiary, because it was a symbol of the French regime's stronghold on the people. So he burst in, killed the overseer of the facility, freed the prisoners, there was only seven at the time, and he took the gunpowder and all that had been stored there and used it against the authorities that he was revolting against. But he didn't stop there. He also went to the cathedral of Notre Dame and he climbed to the very top of the spire and he tore off the cross, he broke off the cross and he threw it down amongst the people, and it shattered on the cobblestones around the base of the cathedral. And he yells out to the crowd of citizens that are standing around watching this, and he says, we are going to pull down everything that reminds you of God. And one of the citizens, one of the peasants from that crowd said, hey, citizen, Yeah, well, if you're going to do that, you might as well pull down all the stars and the sun and the moon and the skies because they remind us of God every time we look at them. 
mission not accomplished. We live in an age where there are people that would tear down everything that we have that would point us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the age that we live in, and guess what? That's the age of all the ages. This has been going on forever since mankind was created. You want to know the first rebellion? The first rebellion happened in a garden called Eden. There's two human beings, and they railed against God because they wanted to make themselves like God, and so they ate of the tree that God said, I forbid you from eating from this. And they said, we don't need your commandments and your statutes. We know what's good for us. We're going to take of this tree and eat. And ever since then, there has been this struggle, this cosmic battle to thwart and to put aside the sovereign reign of the sovereign God, creator of all things. This began in the Garden of Eden, and since then mankind has gained some momentum at times and have gotten really, really creative in how he would thwart the sovereign rule and reign of God. And there are times when this rebellion seems like it's really building up to where it's going to be insurmountable. But I will tell you that all the efforts of mankind to thwart the will of God are pathetic. They're absolutely puny and pathetic, and they will never prevail. And that's what Psalm 2 tells us. Psalm 2 tells us what we know to be true in our world today, and Psalm 2 tells us what we know will be true forever and ever and ever. So let's look at Psalm chapter 2. Let me read through the passage, and then we'll come back. Your sermon outline's in the bulletin. I've broken this into four points. There's four blocks of three verses each, and I hope that you will be encouraged by what God has given us in this psalm. So Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There is great hope in this passage. And I stand before you this morning bearing really, really good news. This is a psalm that you need to spend a lot of time in this week. Especially Tuesday night. No matter what the outcome is, about 9 o'clock, you need to be reading Psalm 2. I'll join you. 
Let's look at this, and we need to understand what each of these passages, each of these clusters of three verses are talking about. And as we go through each one, I want you to note who is speaking in these four stanzas. Because there's a different speaker I submit to you in each one. So starting with verse 3, why do the nations ra- verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who's speaking here? Doesn't say directly. You probably don't even have a heading in Psalm 2 that identifies the speaker, but the speaker is revealed to us in Acts chapter 4 verse 33. John and Peter attribute this psalm, Psalm 2, to David. So we have a Davidic psalm. David is the speaker here in these first three verses. And here's what he does. He asks God, he asks God, why? Why do I look around and I see all this rebellion against you, God? Why? So he acknowledges that the nations and the people of the earth are commonly engaged in a grand plot. They rage and they plot together. He acknowledges that the people of the earth, the kings of the earth, have set themselves against a common enemy. They've set themselves against this common enemy. Picture a defensive lineman setting himself up before the play is run. He is, mankind and these kings have positioned themselves against their foe, and their foe is God, we'll see in a moment. And they are railing against him and plotting and counseling with one another to work against God. And they are conspiring to thwart his will. Who is the common enemy? I've already said that. The common enemy is found in verse 2. There at the end of verse 2. They are set against the Lord and against His anointed. So they're set against two people. The Lord here is Yahweh, God, creator of all things, sustainer of all things. But the second person that they are set against is God's anointed. Let's go back to John. Let me tell you, John 1 through 3, love that I'm preaching through those three passages, those three chapters, because they are foundational. They are foundational to everything we'll ever be about on Sunday mornings in here. We have to know exactly who Jesus Christ is. And you know this from our, from our eight Sundays so far together in this study. Jesus Christ is God Himself. And on Sunday nights, we talked one Sunday night about the names that are given to Christ in the first two chapters of John. And one of those, we see that the disciples, upon discovering Jesus, run to one another and they say what? They say, we have found who? The Messiah. We have found the Messiah. The greatest news in all of time. The Messiah is the anointed one that is spoken of here in Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The anointed, that is, the word for that is Messiah in Hebrew, and in Greek it is Christ. Okay, real simple. That's how those, that word comes through those languages into English. 
Okay, Christos in Greek, Christ in English. So this is a, a pointer here that they are railing against two persons in the Godhead, and we believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? So the Father and the Son are referenced right here in Psalm, one, or Psalm 2, 2. And that is the enemy of the nations and the one against which the kings and the rulers are plotting against. What are they conspiring to do? What is their plot? They want to burst, verse 3, they want to burst their bonds apart. Father and Son, they want to burst the bonds that are put on them apart. And they want to cast away their cords from us. Let me ask you this morning, does God put bonds on us? There a core, is there a cord attached to us in certain areas? You bet there is. You bet there is. This Bible is full of the commands of God. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt do that. This is a book of commands and it's a book of promises. There are bonds, yes, in this Bible. Not, I'm not sad to say that. We need bonds. We need cords tied to us. Because if we're left to run rampant, we will run in a very dark place. So yes, we have bonds on us. Yes, we have cords that hold us together. And they are not to be burst off and cast away. So why does God have these bonds on us? Because He's mean? Because <laughs> He's cranky? No, because He's holy. And God bonds us and gives us rules and directives because He knows that we're fallen. And if we're left ourselves, we will do evil. And so He gives us bonds so that we will worship Him and honor Him and glorify Him with our lives and with our words and with our thoughts and with our actions. But secondly, He bonds us because it's for our good. We need to be bridled. We need to be reined in. Do you agree with that? You need, I need the bonds of God so that I will not totally fall off into corruption. So let's look at some of these bonds. What, what are we, where, where do we see evidence in our life of bonds? And I just want to go to the current issue before us on this Tuesday and show you. We could go on for days if we talked about the bonds that God's put on us that we need. But let me just give you a sampling of the, the bondage that we, the bonds that God has placed on us that are at stake in this election. First of all, God tells us in Genesis 2, and Jesus recites it over in Matthew, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So God has placed a bond on us and said, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. But the world looks at that and says, that's a bond that I want to burst. That's a cord that I want to sever. I don't want anything to do with that. I do not want to be subject to that bond. And I pray that you join me and say, God, thank you for that bond. Thank you for that fence that you've put me in. And I pledge to you that I will stay right within there. Because I know it will glorify you and it will be good for me. There's an example of a bond or a cord that the world wants to cut off. Then Jesus also following up on that in Matthew, he says, What God has joined together, let no man 
separate. God intends one man and one woman to come together in a covenant relationship and to not be burst apart. So there's a prohibition here for men and women to leave one another. It's a bond. It's a cord. And it's for our good. And I can show you, and you know in your head, the evidence that it is for our good and it is for the glory of God that those cords and those bonds would not be broken. God says in Genesis 3, we could just stay in Genesis and look at this, go forth and multiply. It doesn't say until you deem the population of the earth too big and then I want you to not multiply anymore and I want you to control population through abortion. God tells us, you shall not murder. That's a bond that our culture wants to burst off. 55 million babies aborted in America since Roe versus Wade. No, more than that. That's a bond that our culture and the world at large rails against and plots against to burst off and bust out of. The ultimate overriding bond of God, listen to this, Deuteronomy 5, 32. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you. These bonds are for our good. It will go well with us if we honor the bonds of the Lord, the commands, the precepts of the Lord. So this plot that we see in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, has been true for a long, long time. As I said, it started in the Garden of Eden. You can trace it through the Old Testament. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, on and on and on. Empires rise up and they stiff-arm God like the Heisman Trophy and try to throw him aside, carrying the ball as they see fit. What does it look like today? I've mentioned this to some point already, but we have a battle on our hands in our culture about same-sex marriage. And, and the battle, it's unbelievable. The statistics show that 3.8% of the American population is homosexual. Yet you would watch the news and you would live in our culture and you'd think about 80% are, wouldn't you? This little smidgen of a percentage is railing against God and our whole nation is ready to fall off into this deep chasm of embracing same-sex marriage. Easy, no-fault divorce, walk away, blow off that covenant. It's everywhere. Now you stay with me because I know we have this issue in our midst and there is great news because there's forgiveness. Okay? You stay with me on this, but we are going to talk about God's commands and God's call for us to honor Him with all of our life. Look at the battle that we have over abortion against the commandment that you shall not murder. Look at the battle that we have about adultery in our culture. I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop with those. And I want to give you some examples. You ready for this? The United Nations, I got an article dated April 24, 2012. UN chief calls for universal access to abortion and contraception for teenage girls. The United Nations. Why do the nations plot in vain? Why do the kings seek counsel together 
to burst off the bonds of God. The United Nations, a conglomeration of world governments, is now calling for universal access to abortion for teenage girls. Here's Psalm 2 happening. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said Monday that millions of girls, teenagers and younger, need access to abortion in order to avoid unintended pregnancies, unsafe abortions, and STDs. 16 million adolescent girls become mothers every year, and every day more than 2,000 young people contract HIV, Ban said. We have a collective responsibility to drive these numbers down. How will they drive them down? By aborting babies. That's how they're going to drive down teenage pregnancy in the world. How does that stack up against God's commands, thou shalt not murder? Ban said, the nations of the world must provide reproductive health care. They're calling abortion reproductive health care. And access to abortion and contraceptives for young people. We cannot ignore the facts, he said. Many young people are active, and because of this, they may face risks to their health. Pregnancy, life in the womb of a woman, is not a mere health condition. It's a miracle of God. It was ordained by God. And he decreed that that conception would happen. And that baby, that fetus, bears the image of his or her maker. And we are not to snuff out the image of God, ever. That's why we shall not murder. For the last few years, the UN chief has pushed for universal access to abortion for young people, as well as protection from early marriage. And the commission is composed of 47 member states. And they meet annually to discuss population issues and trends in relation to development strategies and policies. 47 member nations. The nations counsel together and plot against God and his anointed. Right there. Dateline, July 23, 2012. Title, UN Commission, here we go again. UN Commission calls for legalizing prostitution worldwide. A report issued by the United Nations recommends that nations around the world get rid of punitive laws against prostitution, or what it calls consensual sex work. That's what we're calling it now. Not prostitution, consensual sex work. The commission recommends repealing all laws that prohibit adult consensual sex work. And it recommends that prostitution should be recognized as an occupation in order to be regulated in a way that protects workers and customers. People, the nations counsel together and they rail and they plot against God and his ways. I can just see it now. You get this legalized and we're going to protect workers and customers. Next thing you know, we're going to have a labor union for them, aren't we? And I'm laughing inside too, but I'm right and you know I am. 
we'll have a right-to-work issue over prostitution before you know it. The UN Commission wants to work with the guardians of customary and religious law. Okay, let me restate that. The UN Commission wants to work with customary and religious lawmakers to promote traditions and religious practices that promote rights and acceptance of diversity and that protect the privacy of those that participate in it. So the UN wants to work with the church to develop some religious laws and some religious practices that would embrace and promote diversity. We believe in diversity. God saves all people. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. All the nations will bow. But we don't embrace diversity of sin. And if we amongst ourselves are sinning, we're called to go to one another in love and in humility, but boldness and say, Brother, come back. Don't do that. You're bursting the bonds that God has set for your protection and His glory. We don't embrace diversity here on sin. It gets better. They want to commission governments around the world to establish laws or to do away with laws that criminalize and dehumanize prostitutes because this drives those people underground away from essential health services and heightens their risk to all kinds of health problems. So let's make laws to where when they do do this, they won't run away from health care. Now, mind you, they want to help these people with these health conditions, while at the same time, I just read you over here, the health condition of pregnancy they want to do away with. These people are schizophrenic. They do not understand what position they take on life. And the commission says that 116 countries and territories have punitive laws against prostitution, while 80 countries or territories have legal protections for sex workers. So we've got 116 that are saying it's illegal. We have 80 that are saying it's legal. And folks, the numbers are shifting, you know, don't you? The numbers are shifting. It's mind-boggling that some 40% of the nations of the world embrace prostitution as a legal activity. The report quotes Secretary General Ban. Who, uh, who stated in 2009 that he was wanting to remove all laws which criminalize prostitution. And the UN-backed commission interviewed prostitutes, activists, and public health advocates in 140 countries across the world to come to its conclusions. <laughs> they interviewed prostitutes to see if we should legalize prostitution. Brilliant. The study received funding from the governments of Canada, Norway, Australia, and the United States of America. And billionaire George Soros through his Open Society Foundations. The nations are plotting. David says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The king of the earth sets themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's just a smidgen of evidence that Psalm 2 is true today. We're going to the polls on Tuesday. And I dare say neither neither presidential candidate is ideal. <laughs> but we do have to go to the polls and we have to say, Lord, what are your precepts? What are your commandments? And who is the one that will most likely uphold those, regardless of my other problems? And we have to vote like that. Sitting on the bench is not an option for the church. We have to go vote as an act of worship of God, and we need to pray as we vote, Lord, would you raise up a king in the United States of America that would promote your precepts? And would you save him along the way? Would you show him Jesus Christ? And would he profess him as Lord? But if not, would he at least, unknowingly or knowingly, uphold your precepts from your word? So vote this Tuesday morning. Do not sit on the bench. Your God requires it of you. So what will happen? Here's the good news. What will be the outcome of their stand against this common enemy, these two common enemies? <laughs> we see it already in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's vanity what their plots and their arrangements are and their counseling together. Looks like a victory now. Looks like loss is happening. But it is all in vanity when you look at it from an eternal perspective. And that's what the rest of this psalm will unpack for us. So no matter how creative and how advanced man's attempts may be, they will never succeed. Man's efforts against an almighty God in the end are pathetic. Are absolutely pathetic. There's good news in that. But we must be informed as we live in this age. Let's go to the second point. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's the speaker? David spoke in those first three verses. Who is the speaker? Let me hear you. God is the speaker. God is speaking back to David now, answering, because David asked God, why is this going on? And so God is speaking, and David says, before God speaks, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Tie that back to, why do they plot in vain? They plot in vain because God sits on his throne and he laughs at the United Nations. This passage has been so abused. I want you to be very careful when you read Christian books. And I believe in reading good, solid Christian books. But this verse has been wildly abused. There's a very common bestseller Christian book on the market now, has been on the market for years. Listen to what this author said about the verse, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He writes, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 2, 4. 
the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Isn't that a great verse? God has a sense of humor. God laughs. Do you see what's wrong with that? Have you ever heard of the term proof texting? We need to all be careful, every one of us in this room including me, Proof texting is the act of going to a verse in the Bible and taking it all by itself and making it mean whatever it means in your context. We need to go to the Bible and we need to take the verses in the context within which they were written. This is not a picture of a jolly Santa Claus-like grandfather God sitting up on his throne with a gray beard slapping his knee, jolly laughing. Okay? This is an almighty God who has wrath and vengeance in store for his enemies. And it says there, if you just read the second half of verse 4, the Lord holds them in derision. He's not laughing because he's happy. So be careful when you go to the Bible that you read in context what is being said and be careful when you go buy bestsellers on the Christian book list. Be careful. Read them with your Bible in your right hand and make sure that it measures up to what's going on in Scripture. So God's laughter is not happy. This laughter is scoffing at his enemies. He holds them in derision, and he's laughing because he could smoke them into vapors, just like that. And that's good news for you and me. That's good news. They're plotting in vain. He's laughing at them. That means it's going to be all right in the end. But in the interim we must be found faithful to promote God in all that we do, including punching out chads or connecting lines or punching keys. Okay? Everything is about God, including voting. So there's no verse found in the Bible. I, I've, I've looked throughout the Bible. If you all know of one, tell me. I don't see God portrayed as a jolly old laugher in the Bible. I give you Psalm 59.8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. Sounds just like Psalm 2-4, doesn't it? How about Proverbs 1:26 and 27? God speaking, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. That's God speaking to those that would stiff arm him and say, your bonds need to be broken off of me. And I need to determine what's right. That's the God of the Bible when laughing comes up. And you need to be enthralled, confident, thrilled that your God laughs at his enemies. He's not intimidated by them. Doesn't have to, oh, I got a counter now. I didn't expect that. No, he laughs at them. And he puts kings on their thrones and then he laughs at them when they plot against him. <laughs> So everything's going to be all right Tuesday night, no matter what the outcome is, because our God's on his throne. So God's response to this rebellion nation, it's laughter. He's omnipotent. His will cannot be thwarted. And he will enthrone his chosen king, and he will enthrone his son once and for all and forever. In fact, look what it says here. He says, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have. That's called past tense. That means it's already done. It's been decreed. 
from the foundation of the world before it, I have set my son on Zion, on the throne, on the holy hill. And his son will speak wrath, and he will terrify them with his fury. And do you remember John 2? Well, it was last Sunday. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And John says he was speaking of his body. The holy hill, Zion, Jerusalem, where the temple is. Jesus will come back to that temple and he will reign and rule from there. See how John's now connecting and informing us as we read Psalm 2? Those first three chapters of John are critical. They're the iron in our blood. Come back for more next week. And so since God laughs at his opponents, we must not be dismayed. And we can be confident that it will all be well in the end. Let's move to point three. God's king of kings. Verse seven. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You tell me, church. Give it to me loud. Who's speaking here? Jesus Christ. David in the first, God the Father in the second. Now we've got God the Son speaking in this third point. The Lord said to me, God the Father said to the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Be careful with that word begotten. It doesn't mean made. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made with Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is not made because anything that's ever been made, he made. So this begotten does not mean Jesus was made. In fact, Acts chapter 4 informs us what's going on here. I'm sorry, Acts 13, 33. Also it is written in the second psalm. Okay, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke says, also it is written in the second psalm. Okay, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So he quotes this very verse in Acts 13.33. And then he says this, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. So God saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you, means that I have raised you from the dead, you have conquered sin and death and ever, and you are now on your royal throne at my right hand. We worship a Christ who's reigning, who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father and interceding on behalf of His people right now. And we see that God says to the Son, and the Son quotes the Father, that He's going to give Him a heritage and a possession. And that heritage is going to be the nations, and that possession is going to be the earth. Let me just wash you with three passages of Scripture that prove this out furthermore. Psalm 110, 1 through 2. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's who Christ is. Psalm 110, 1 through 2. Matthew 28, Jesus says at the Great Commission, right? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
That's what the Son says in Psalm 2. And then the last one, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Psalm 2 coming out in Paul's pen on the parchment. So the Son will have a heritage and possession with no end for all of eternity. And lastly, in this section, we see that the Son's breaking and dashing will be like that of busting up a potter's vessel. A, and I just we read this last Sunday, and we have to read this again. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Okay? This is what we will have happen in the end times. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name on which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations that plot against him. I added that part. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Rod of iron, you see it right there in Psalm 2. He will rule with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you pledge allegiance to this king or a mere man that might serve four years or eight? Where's your allegiance? Please. Make this the God-man, your King of kings and your Lord of lords. Do not let Tuesday night be a night of celebration or a night of despair because of some fleshly man that was elected. You remember that this King of kings is not going to be thwarted. And this is where our hope is. Final point. God gives us a warning and an invitation in this passage as well, starting in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are you, all who take refuge in Him. Who's the speaker? It's not real clear. Father, Son, David. We don't know for sure, but there is a pretty good argument that we could imply through this that this is the Holy Spirit speaking. It's not perhaps the Son because the Son is referred to in the third person. So don't know, but 
We do see evidence of the Trinity here, Father, Son, and Spirit, and it could be that this is the words of the Holy Spirit who inspired David to write. Not a major issue. It's not going to be life or death for you if you figure out who is speaking here. But we see here that there's a profound truth, and it's called good news. Because God, in all of his wrath and anger, says, I want to warn you, O kings and nations, and I want to invite you to come kiss the Son instead of rail against Him. See, God takes no pleasure in judging mankind. He will do it. It will happen. But He doesn't delight in it. That's why He offers this warning and this invitation. He'd much rather save man than judge man. And so the warning here is fourfold. Be wise and be warned, O kings and rulers. And he says, serve the Lord. And then he says, fear the Lord. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. And finally he says, kiss the Son. You know, it was popular. I'm guilty of this. It's very popular for eight years in the 2000s to pray for our president wasn't it? It was easy. Has it been as commonplace in the church the last four years to pray for our president? We're called to pray and lift him up. And I think this is what our prayers would look like. Father, would you cause our president to serve you? It's a great prayer. Father, would you cause our president to fear you? Oh, we need to pray that, church. Father, would you cause our president and our legislatures, our senators and our representatives to rejoice in you and to not plot against you, and to not burst off your bonds, but to embrace them and clutch to them fast and say, we can't do that, that's abortion and abortion's murder. We can't do that. He said, one man and one woman. Would you, Father, make our leaders believe that and act that out? So the call is, no matter what happens on Tuesday night, we've got to pray this for the people that will lead our government for the next season. And we do it not only because of them. We do that to honor the Lord. And guess what? It will be good for us if the Lord inclines their hearts to fear and honor Him and serve Him and rejoice in Him and kiss the Son. What does this kiss the Son mean? It's a sign of humble submission to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. That's what kiss the Son means. He could have said bow at His feet. And He says, kiss the Son lest He be angry with you and lest you perish in your ways and lest His wrath will be kindled against you. We need to pray that our leaders would embrace Jesus Christ. Let's be faithful to do that. Let's do that as we walk into the booth, as we walk out. Let's do that as we watch Fox, CNN, whatever your choice is on Tuesday night. Sorry. (laughs) I I, I hear you. (laughs) Let's, Let's do that. Let's pray that these people that got elected will kiss the sun. And so there's an invitation here to kiss the Son, and this is saving faith. So we're praying for the salvation of our leaders. 
The best thing that can happen to us is I don't care who is leading our nation, in what seat or in what house, the best thing that can happen is that they find Jesus Christ. We have found the Messiah. Someone needs to go tell them, Senator, Mr. President, I have found the Messiah, and I want you to know him. And if he would bow and kiss the Son, we don't care who it is, do we? We want a man that kisses the Son. We want a woman in our legislature, wherever, that bows to the throne of Jesus Christ. We're in a season of grace in which God invites us to trust in Him and His Son. And this season will come to a close one day. It's guaranteed. It will come to a close, and God will address those who don't trust Him with His wrath. So, the world has not seen the last of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the governments and the people plotted against Jesus. And they crucified him. They even plotted while he was in the grave. They put a big stone over it so that no one could go steal his body and get him out. And then they've plotted against him ever since to deny the fact that he rose from the dead. This is still going on. And they've not seen the last of Jesus Christ. We read about him in Revelation 19. Is that day going to be a day of joy for you or a day of fear and trembling? So he's coming again. He'll be accompanied with the armies of heaven. And right now he is offering to you and to me and to our governments a peace offering. He would like to come to terms of peace so that they would embrace him and he would embrace them and this offer is not forever and one day it will be withdrawn I conclude with this in what or in whom are you seeking and finding refuge in today is it the king of kings or is it the kings who plot The answer to that question is going to really be revealed on Tuesday night. Churches are full of people who are white-knuckled and about to freak out over what's going to happen on Tuesday. And I just read you Psalm 2, and this is the church should read Psalm 2 and be boldly confident, remorseful at what's going on in the world, but certain and confident that things will be okay because God is sovereign over puny little man. You know, the church is full of people who faithfully listen to talk radio, read the news blogs all day while at the office, hurry home and eat dinner in front of the news talk shows that night, getting blow by blow everything that happened on the campaign trail, and yet their Bible is dusty, sitting over there, and it's their only source of hope. Let's not be a church that sets the Bible aside and lets our truth be defined by what we see in the news and our hopes be defined by who's in the office. We are to be concerned. We are to be very, very involved in the political process. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Being in the world is promoting candidates that will uphold the laws of God and voting for them in kind. So we don't sit on the bench, but we also are not so freaked out that our life is dictated by what happens on Tuesday. 
We're not to be consumed with it. Politics cannot become our idol. It can't be like our temptation to idolize sports teams. We cannot be apathetically passive. We cannot be aggressively enraged. We must be more concerned about spreading the gospel than getting our candidate elected. Do you believe that? Does that look like you the last few months? Are you more about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do you have a little g gospel of your candidate that you're sharing with everybody? Promote the gospel and promote those that will uphold the gospel. But the gospel must be first, center, and only. So voting this Tuesday, and if you've done it already early, is an act of worship. And you go in not white-knuckled, but confident that God will appoint the ones that he wants to lead from then on. And we need perspective as we do this. In A.D. 360, Flavius, Flavius Claudius Julianus ascended to the throne of Caesar, and he was the head of the Roman Empire, A.D. 360. And he reinstated pagan worship throughout the empire. And he wanted to snuff out anything that looked like Christianity. Anything. And snuff out meant murder Christians so that there would be no more. He severely persecuted Christians. And while entertaining some of his friends, he brought in a Christian named Agaton, who was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And he said, with, with Agaton in the room and all of his friends, how is your carpenter of Nazareth doing these days? Is he finding much work? You know what Agaton said? Oh yeah, he, he's got plenty of work. In fact, he's taken a little vacation from building mansions for all the saints and he's working on your coffin and the coffin of your empire as we speak. Well, the Roman Empire came to a, clue, to a close, didn't it? And there have been many empires that have come and gone. Look at the top four. The, the Roman Empire, the peak was A.D. 117. It had 4% of the land mass on earth was within its empire. The Mongol Empire in the 1200s encompassed 16% of the earth and 25% of the earth's population. Crashed and burned. The Spanish Empire in the 1790s was the peak, 13% of the land of the world, 12% of the population of the world in the Spanish Empire. Where's Spain today? <laughs> the Russian Empire, 1800s, 15% of the Earth's landmass, 10% of the Earth's population. No empire today. How about the biggie, the biggest of all time? The British Empire. Sun never sits on the British Empire, right? Well... In the peak, 1922, they had 22% of the earth's land, and they had 20% of the earth's population in their territories. And today, we had to bail them out of World War II. In the final presidential debate, two Mondays ago, one candidate said this, America is the only indispensable nation. The other candidate said this, America is the hope of the earth. They're both wrong. 
Jesus Christ is the hope of the earth. And the kingdom of God is the only indispensable nation. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, and if you've kissed the Son, you're a citizen of that kingdom. And I've prayed all week as I've walked up to this pulpit today that if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as a result of this sermon, you would see that you have been plotting against God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you need to kiss the Son so that you can be right with Him. For see, the Son never sets on the kingdom of God. In fact, the Son was made to shine on the kingdom of God. Are you a member of that kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we're, we're informed by your word of who you are and who the nations are and who the kings and rulers that plot against you are. And we're very clearly aware now. We have no excuse. We are very clearly aware now that you and your sovereign reign will have no end and that you sit right now laughing at your enemies. Father, we know that we're in a season of grace where you're choosing not to send Jesus back on that white horse. And we know from the Bible that you're doing that so that the fullness of the world, the Gentiles, will come in and the people will profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For the day that you do send your Son back, it is over. And there is no more opportunity to be right with you. So Father, through these days and this season of grace that you've given us, would you be aggressively working to bring people to salvation through us in our words and our actions? And Father, would you prepare us for this certain day that's coming? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.